If you're a pastor, elder, deacon, nonprofit board member, or business owner, I need you to listen to this. K&K Furnishings needs to be on your shortlist. K&K Furnishings are committed to helping you find the right furnishings for your church or organization. These guys specialize in quality worship seating, welcome centers, cafes, nurseries, classrooms, as well as stage and podium furnishings. The two owners have over 70 years of combined pastoral experience, so not only will every transaction be handled with integrity and professionalism, but they have the experience to provide you with the perfect solutions for your furniture needs, and they absolutely understand your budget constraints and demands. K&K Furnishings are devoted to providing you quality pieces that save you money. They can do this because they don't have the overhead of a brick and mortar store and they have relationships with over 200 manufacturers nationwide. Look, we all know there's a lot of junk out there. K&K understands that many times bargains aren't true money savers. They end up costing you more in the long run. At K&K, they believe that quality furnishings don't have to be outrageously expensive. And here's the best part. K&K Furnishings sells nationally and can also provide in-person consultations in Michigan, Ohio, and Indiana. If you can't meet in person, they'd be happy to set up a Zoom consultation for you today. So whatever your next project is, whether it's your home office or your church sanctuary, K&K Furnishings is the only place you need to look. Go to www.kkfurnishings.com to see how they can help you or call 567-318-4520. That's www.kkfurnishings.com or call 567-318-4520 or click on the link in the description of this episode. K&K Furnishings, furnishing business, education, worship, and hospitality for the glory of God. Hey guys, before we get into this week's episode, I got to tell you about Jacob's Supply. Jacob's Supply is the place you got to go for all of your material needs. These guys bring you construction supplies and appliances for up to 50% off retail price, all brand new. Your home builder needs some lumber? Jacob's Supply has you covered. You a deacon at your church and you're in charge of that next Narthex floor job? Jacob's Supply has got you. Heck, they got Cortec Luxury Vinyl Plank right now for $3.59 a square foot. Go look that stuff up at Lowe's or Home Depot, man. That stuff is selling for $7 to $8 a square Square foot. That's over 50% off retail. Even if you just have some home projects you're working on, Jacob Supply is the place for you. I just built an outdoor grilling area this spring for that old smoker and grill. Guess where I got the metal roof, lumber, and screws? Yeah, that's right, Jacob Supply. Looking for a fridge, stove, washer, dryer? They got them all, and their name brand. Samsung, Bosch, Frigidaire, all 20, 30, 40% off retail. Brand new and ready for you. Located in Temperance, Michigan, it's worth it to stop by even if you're a few hours away. And remember, Jacob Supply can ship products nationally too. So even if you're out of state, you gotta check them out. Follow them on Facebook at Jacob Supply or call them direct at 734-224-0978. That's 734-224-0978. 0978. Remember, Jacob Supply, quality building materials at wholesale prices. And now, on to the show. Exploring theology, doctrine, and all of the fascinating subjects in between, broadcasting from an undisclosed location, Dead Men Walking starts now. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Dead Men Walking. I'm your host, Greg Moore. And if you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, you know that I love comedy, consume a lot of it, and I love and respect comics that work clean. And we've had comics on here before, and as our intro title says, we do talk about doctrine and theology, but also all those interesting things in between. And I think I have an interesting guest today. I not think. I think I know that we have an interesting guest you can find him on Instagram at Ricky. That's G-L-O-R-E-R-I-C-K-Y. On Twitter at Ricky Glore. He is 
has a new album out, actually, uh, I think last month, called Spitting Image. He's been featured on the Bob and Tom Show, Dry Bar Comedy. And he has a brand new YouTube series that comes on once a week called Weekend Pup Date. Ladies and gentlemen, Ricky Glore. How are you, Ricky? Oh, I didn't expect all the fanfare. Thank you so much, Greg. Oh, we are so high-tech here. We've got buttons and sounds and everything. (laughs) (laughs) I have nothing. I have a a handled plastic mug with some (laughs) seltzer because I killed uh, drinking soda a little over a year ago when my daughter was born. Oh, wow. Good for you. one kind of weight management thing I've been able to obtain since having a one-year-old. But that's all I have here. I have no time. Yeah, and you're a new dad, and we'll get into that uh, because that comes through on some of your comedy. I was listening to your your latest album, Spitting Image, and there was some really funny stuff on there that I could relate to. I'm a father of three, 10, 8, and 6, so my one-year-old days are a little bit behind me. But uh, when you were talking about some of those things, especially when you talk about uh, parents taking pictures and they go, oh, your baby's so cute. And it's like, yeah, we didn't run in in the middle of the night when they're, you know, pooping their pants and tears streaming down their face. Uh, What kind of parent would I be? I I know what you're talking about. I relate. It's sad that I'm laughing at you telling me the premise (laughs) and the joke that I told on an album. But it it, it, genuinely the stuff that I write for my comedy I've learned over the years. I've been doing stand-up since 2005. Okay. And when I first started off, I I didn't tell a lot of personal stuff. I was I created, I wrote a lot of jokes. I grew up on Saturday Night Live. I grew up on old comedy, on yeah. uh, vaudeville kind of comedy of the Marx Brothers, of the Hope and Crosby road pictures, of Martin and Lewis, yep. which then transcended into you know, 50s, 60s comedy, the monkeys television series and Mm -hmm. digging their music and watching Batman, which works on a little bit of a subversive level. When you're a kid, you think it's the coolest thing ever. But as soon as you start getting a little bit old enough to start picking up on the innuendos and the kind (laughs) of adult humor, it it transcends another level. Right. So, but I I laugh at at what what you tell me that I've already performed. (laughs) <laughs> because I am now connected to myself personally and I've decided I'm not going to write material that I think is funny. I'm going to examine my own life and start dissecting where the natural comedy comes from. And I'm at a, I'm at an age where I wasn't at when I first started when I was 19 that I feel like I've lived some life now that I'm uh, 34 years old that I feel like I can mine some of my own life or comedy. And just thinking about that, like everyone tells us their daughter, one, looks exactly like me. That's why the album's called Spinning Image. And okay. she's, if, you, if you buy my CD, there's three pictures of her and I. She's all over it. In, in the liner notes, I think my wife, because without my wife, Allie, I would have no material if you've listened to the album. Yep. And without my daughter, I would have no pictures on the album. <laughs> and I would have no title. But she, everyone tells us how happy she is. She's always laughing. And for the most part, I would say 75% to 80% she is. Sure. But when she has a fit, and it's always the most ridiculous thing, (laughs) it scares us because she's one, and we don't let her have our phone or do anything on it. Sure. But because it's a glorified flashlight, 
Like she is transfixed on it. That is all she wants. And all we can see is a flash forward to the future when she's like 15 or 16 and she'll be on whatever futuristic device they've replaced the phone with by then. I always joke and say my kids are going to, you know, sit back when, when I'm a grandfather and, and uh, joke about how we used to, you know, yeah, back in dad's day, he had to pick it up and actually look at it. Now we just think about it and it pops up in our, you know, it'll be, it'll be something crazy like that. But uh, yeah, they're automatically. That's another bit. What's that's that? another bit on the album is oh. the, the photo album thing yeah. uh, that it's going to be a hologram wristwatch. Right. Photos just pop up. I mean, yeah, I, we've, we've reached that age. I mean, I know 34, 35 is an, is an old but I think it's right in the sweet spot of understanding new technology, but also still being blown away by the technology of yesterday. Like I will, I will sit and think that it is a travesty that my daughter will never have the Friday night experience of going to a video store and looking at the movie boxes for 30 minutes to pick a mediocre movie. Oh, you remember those days? Oh, I, I, I yearn for it. <laughs> oh, I hated it. You walk into a blockbuster and you're there for an hour and you still haven't found anything that you like. And you, you know, you got 300 movies there and you're just going, gosh, I guess we'll get There's this the one. Difference. That's the difference between you and I. Yes, we had a blockbuster, but because my dad was a cinephile, we went to the seedier, just no name uh, video store called Showtime Video, okay. which blockbuster had a, a rule that I think uh, they couldn't have too hard of an R okay. for like a horror section or a sci-fi section, Okay, um, which I don't know what they determined was a hard R or a soft R. Um, but like Blockbuster used to not have certain horror movies, like the video store we grew up on. Oh, I never saw those. I never got to see those movies, but to be able to look at the boxes, the box art of the horror section right. and like, imagine what the movie could be about oh i could spend hours i <laughs> people talk about having a time machine and going back and during like doing some noble things of stopping like some terrible life events i would be selfish and be like i just want to go back to when i was like eight and just stand in the video store well you want to what's funny is i was i had this thought a couple of weeks ago i was reading a, a article online about how they're saying uh gen z and younger millennials are having a hard time committing. And I went, well, I'm 30, uh, I'll be 30. Well, I just turned 39 uh, a few days ago. And so I'm an elder millennial. I'm right, thank you. I'm right on that line of Gen X. Uh, sounds like you're in your mid thirties. So we're close. Mm-hmm. Is that what you are? Mid thirties about somewhere there? Yeah. Early? You're about the same age as my middle brother, Eric, who I talked okay. about on the album. He's turning uh, he's turning 40 this year. Okay. So we we're in that in-between space where we still remember rotary phones and pre cell phone and things like that. But I just yep. th- had this thought of, yeah, th- they can't commit because like our generation, if just, if you wanted to watch a movie, you had to get in your car you had to put on your coat, <laughs> you had to drive there. You had, you know, two hours of looking at it and then whatever you, you had to rented call movie phone. You had, yeah, to- and you had to call movie phone. If you're going to see a, a live movie, like at the theater and it'd be like tonight, you know, yeah. Armageddon is showing at 7 p.m. Absolutely. 30 p.m. Yeah. And, and then the crux of it was whatever movie you did get, that's the one you were watching. You paid money for it. You've spent two hours of your time picking it out. Now you got to go watch this cruddy movie, you know, and now we're so oh, spoiled. You, play, we, you, we, plan, you planned your next 
three nights around what you were going to rent <laughs> because like I don't know if, about Blockbuster because like I said we occasionally rented from them if you like if you wanted the new movie where they guaranteed you know a copy in stock right but like if like I went to like you said the seedier one where you could rent three movies and have them for two or three days your next few days were planned by (laughs) what your one decision was on one night absolutely now we treat netflix like tinder and just swipe left on whatever two thousand titles at our fingertips (laughs) that's i mean you say about them not being able to make a decision i hate when my wife like well let's just look for a movie on amazon prime or hulu or netflix right and i there's a little bit of a superiority complex with me when it comes to movies well, cinephiles uh, have that. Not, I get it. You guys are your own brand. And I like bad movies. I, I will straight up say, like, Grease 2, not a good movie. Do I love Grease 2? You bet your Ab- movie. Absolutely. Like, <laughs> I I mean, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I could go on for hours about Grease 2 and Cool Rider and Michelle Pfeiffer. Well, now that, not. now that we've lost about 30% of our audience <laughs> under, the, <laughs> under the age of 25, because they have no idea what a blockbuster is. No, uh, <laughs> no if you don't even know what Grease 2 is, if you didn't know there was a sequel to Grease, right. please give it a chance. Was, but, was Travolta in Grease 2, or did they bring in someone else? Oh, no, 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 no. No, Grease 2, the only returning cast members are Frenchie because she dropped out of school in Greece one to go to beauty school. So she has to finish up her credits. Uh, The principal and her assistant who make the greatest joke of Greece over the intercom when they say about athletic tryouts and that if you cannot be a, uh, if you cannot be an athlete, be an athletic supporter. Okay. Um, which is a jock supporter, but whatever. Um, and that's the dirtiest joke I'll tell on your podcast. And uh, I think Sid Caesar returned. I think those are the only return. And then you talked about us talking about blockbuster and losing people. I just mentioned Sid Caesar. For anyone who loves comedy, do some research and look up Sid Caesar's Your Show of Shows, which was the college for what we now kind of understand as modern day comedy or right. what was the development with Carl Reiner, Mel Brooks, Buck Henry, Woody Allen. You have some of the biggest minds in comedy being basically what now is like the original SNL writers. They're the guys who created Get Smart, you know, Blazing Sat, like everything we know from comedy from the years. Like Saturday Night Live would not exist if it weren't for Sid Caesar and your show of shows. Right. Now we've lost, we've lost all of your listeners. (laughs) <laughs> they're like sid caesar who's that yeah uh oh, did, I'll, didn't I'll, he live I'll, in rome so, <laughs> was he too brute yeah <laughs> um, but so my wife I'll, I'll wrap this up because like i said i'll chase rabbits uh we'll scroll through netflix and because i have a little bit of a superiority when it comes to movies she cannot recognize when the cover art that is on netflix or a movie title is not a movie that was released to a theater now, when a movie's released to a theater, that does not guarantee that it's good. Right. And a straight-to-video or streaming movie does not mean that it's necessarily bad. But your chances are right. it's going to be awful. And she has no barometer for this. <laughs> so it takes us even longer. And she's like, yes, don't you think we should watch The Soldier and the Wife? And I'm like, "I, The Soldier and the Wife starring who? 
Right. And she's like, well, nobody. And I'm like, exactly. exactly. We should not watch this movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, let's back up here a little bit. Let's tell our listeners a little bit about you. Can you give us a little bio on uh, where'd you come from? Uh, you said you started comedy in 2005, how you grew up. Just give us a little short five-minute uh, bio of who Ricky Glore is. I'll try to give it shorter um, because if you want to listen, not that other people should listen to other podcasts, but I've definitely gone into that deeper on other ones. But I started comedy in 2005. I was born and raised in Northern Kentucky, which is real close to Cincinnati. When mm-hmm. anyone asks where I'm from, I usually say Cincinnati because it's right there on the river. Okay. And when I say Kentucky, it's just usually a barrage of questions that don't apply to me. I don't have a Southern upbringing. Right. Um, I, like I did, there were farms and stuff around where I live, but that just wasn't my way of life more of a city uh, kind of life. Uh, I started stand-up in 2005. I wanted to join the college improv team because my mindset was go to college, do improv, do sketch, move to Chicago, do Second City Improv Olympics, get a job doing writing or performing or both for Saturday Night Live. That was my track. So college... I couldn't get on the improv team at first. So I wanted an outlet for comedy. And I found out that the local comedy club that I would soon start serving at was offering a stand-up class that was taught by Jeff Jenna, who's a great stand-up comedian who's been kind of a mentor to me. And if you like dry bar at all, he has a fantastic special on that. Sure. I went to the class and he was phenomenal. He wasn't there just to take people's money. The first class, there's like 50 people. And he said, if you came here because you thought I could teach you how to be funny, um, I'm not going to charge you for the first class. If you don't come back to the second one, you don't have to pay anything because the only thing I can do is give you stage time and direction to hopefully find your voice and what you think is funny. Right. The next class, there was like 12 of us. Right. Because I mean, I, I, never would have thought that going to a stand-up class, the teacher would magically wave a wand or be a genie in a lamp and make you funny if you didn't have that natural inclination to do that. Sure. But so every week he, he held up to his promise. He gave us writing prompts and he had us each go up on stage every week. We each had three minutes every class to go up there with a microphone under the lights on a stage at a comedy club and do the writing prompt that he had given us. So at the end of that, we had a giant showcase for everyone in the class, which he said, he's like, this show will be sold out. It'll be the best crowd you ever have because there are people that here that are going to be here that know you and want to support you. Mm. Uh, and it was. And from that, I started doing open mics. I started getting into the club. Like I said, I got a serving job there. So... I put myself out there to audition to become a regular MC for the club. I got that. Like I said, I loved SNL. So any chance I got, if there was someone from SNL that came through or someone I had admired as a comic, I put my hat into the ring of wanting to MC for them. Sure. So I got to work with a, a variety of a lot of the different comics. Um, and then in 2009, I graduated college and then I moved to Chicago and like I said, my goal was to do improv and sketch. So I did Second City. I did Improv Olympics. And I took a, I took a break from stand-up for a while. 
Okay. Because I was pursuing that. And I started doing some theater again because that's what I had a degree in. And I started writing and producing original theater. And I was having a really good time doing that. My first week in Chicago, I worked at Second City. And I saw Lauren Michaels, Seth Meyers, and Michael Shoemaker come in and watch auditions for the next year of SNL at Second City and Improv Olympics. And I was like, okay, cool. I'm real close to the dream that I want. I'm already on the track. The longer that I stayed in Chicago and the more that I did, I realized that I maybe didn't have the perseverance to get SNL regardless of talent. I was someone who wasn't going to hang out with the right people, either it's my own stubbornness or whatever. Right. I didn't want to go to the bars after every show. I didn't feel compelled to stay up and make sure that I hung out with the right people, that I made the right connections. Now that's not to say that I didn't do that for the things that I ultimately wanted that fulfilled me and my many goals that I had. But the dream of SNL got dimmer because I was achieving these mini goals. Now, flash forward a couple years, I get married in Chicago. I meet my wife. Um, We're going to move back to Kentucky because that's one of the only ways I can figure out that we can buy a house and start a family. Sure. We move back. I start doing stand-up again because the theater opportunities aren't there. Theater's not as independent theater is not as prevalent. Really? There's uh, no there's, in, there's no big opera and theater houses in Kentucky, huh? <laughs> there there are. I know. But it's like they only want the greatest thing about Chicago is you can throw a rock and hit a live show any night of the week. That, that's, which is yeah, great that's when you're was, young. That's that's kind of what I was insinuating. Chicago, New York, yeah. even Los Angeles, you can get into, you know, that's more of the cities Atlanta and, and now can, too and you can do you can do weirder things like i was doing like i'm a big fan of film especially horror um one of my the second show that i wrote was a parody called a nightmare on back street a boy band musical parody which it was <laughs> the story of a nightmare on elm street with freddy krueger to the music of the backstreet boys oh that's funny yeah and so i got into a hook of a series of shows kind of doing these parodies one of them was Fleetwood Macbeth, which it was uh, Macbeth <laughs> and Fleetwood set in the Mac. 70s at a radio station. Yeah, with yes. Fleetwood Mac. So, like, I was doing these shows. I did a few original shit musicals because each show that I did, I wanted to stretch my muscles of what I could do. Um, but then when I got back, those opportunities really weren't there. So I was like, okay, again, kind of like I did when I was in college, I want to express myself comedically. All I need is myself because I'm the writer, director, performer for stand up. I started doing that and then I just kind of hit the ground running, like found a group of comics that I felt good with that I gelled with that we went on, we started going on the road. I started booking us shows and I just started developing my hour set, pushing myself to start headlining the shows that I started booking. And from that, weirdly enough, I got a contact from Saturday night live. Wow. Then they asked, can you send an audition video? Can you send a writing packet? I did it, I think, in 2017, and I didn't hear anything. But, again, that was cool to get, but that wasn't necessarily my 
like be all end all goal. So I kept on because my goal now was to do an hour comfortably to then record an album to do a special. Sure. And so I got that. I got the dry bar special, which Jeff Jenna and Erica Rhodes were really instrumental with helping me hone what would be good for that because they had both done it. And then in 2018, I'm headlining more in SNL. Uh, I got a contact again from Lindsay Shookus, a producer, and Jeff Blake, two of their talent producers. And they're like, would you like to audition again? Well, the first year, the video I sent was exactly what they're asking for. Um, some impressions and original characters. Then this next year, I was like, well, they've seen that. I'm going to send them a music video that I did, that I put together. Okay. And in August, uh, about a month before they start their live shows, so I put down my wife as my agent because I didn't have a booking agent at the time. Okay. And she got a call one night and I saw on her phone that it said it was a New York number. And I was like, oh my God, this could be SNL. And she was like doing dishes or something after I'd cooked. And she's like, I'm sure it's not. And I answered the phone and I held it up to her ear. And she's like, hello, this is Valley Dally Night. And I could hear from the phone. Hi, this is blah 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 from SNL, and I was like, "Oh, <laughs> right!" And like, we just wanted to let you know that uh, we really enjoyed um, Ricky's uh, video and writing packet. We just decided not to move forward at this time, right? And so, just getting that call in 2018, I was like, "Cool!" Like, I got I got acknowledgement, and not only that, but not to I, interrupt you, but just for people listening, yeah. it's not like. They're getting a hundred thousand. They're asking for a hundred thousand audition tapes a year. I mean, just to be uh, asked to send in an audition tape and then get a personal callback. You know, if, if I was you, I would take that as a little bit of, well, thank you. I mean, you're at a certain level at that point. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. I mean, per, per, yeah, I, I, I'm elated for that to happen. Now, would it be Christmas day to be offered a job? Sure. Sure. But also, I don't know what the struggles would be, uh, that would be, especially in the brand new world that we're in now, let alone having a, a young daughter and a wife and uprooting them from the life we currently have. Sure. To, to that, I am conscious enough to know that, and not, hopefully not selfish enough, to know that that wouldn't be burdensome in some way to my, my family unit. Um, but yes, it is, it is a huge honor to be asked to send something and, and also to get acknowledgement. I love those stories of when you, you see these comedic actors, uh, actors, stand up comics and they go, Oh yeah, I got passed over on Saturday night live multiple times. And you're like, who, who's the talent scout? <laughs> but you just you, for, for Saturday night live, I mean, some of these guys are, you know, Jim just Carrey. J- Jim Carrey. That was, I was just going to say that, you know, nice. uh, but you know, you can't tell it's so hard to get, even in an in-person audition and over, you know, over a tape or a thumb drive of a, you know, digital short or something, it's just so hard to, you know what I mean? Judge that and see that, that it's. And uh, I, I've I've been achieving my many goals that I've set for myself. Like I, uh, I don't believe in the sad clown. I think everybody deals with some sort of depression and there's whatever coping you have to get through that or support that you have. Sure. And, um, that not getting SNL in any way has not been a depression, but I set these many goals that it doesn't see like it doesn't seem like a dangling carrot that I've never reached any goal because, like I said, the dry bar special 
it couldn't have been anything more of a dream of being pampered in, you know, five cameras and a packed house and the conditions of recording two shows. And it was awesome. And then recording the album and then like how it turned, like everything that I've accomplished has been above and beyond what I've wanted it to be. And so I still have these many goals and not achieving this grandiose goal sure. is fine because well, that's a very healthy way to look at it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It is balanced. That's, that's, that's my stand-up story. And my, what I'm working on now and where it's weird in this world we live in is writing a new hour and figuring out how to incorporate that with some tried and true bits because uh, my comedy Bible is the documentary comedian that Jerry Seinfeld did. I think it is, uh, a, a great blueprint to how you should look at doing stand-up where they advise, you know, doing new material, every comic wants to do it at the beginning because they're excited and they don't want to forget it because they just memorized it. Sure. But I know to resist that, do the tried and true, some stuff that's on the album that I've done, and then work in that new stuff in the middle and throughout, and then finish strong again with tried and true stuff. Yes, the sandwich it. So, so you kind of take. First, so you kind of take that Jerry Seinfeld approach to where some comics will just take their special and w- when they do it, they're done. They throw it out and they work on an entirely new hour and it's all new stuff and they might might test it out for a little bit in the clubs and and then work on that to where Seinfeld kind of says he sprinkles in stuff still from you know the seventies oh, yeah. and eighties. He's got you know, 60 to 70% that's throughout his whole career. And then he'll add 10, 20, 30% new and just always kind of moving forward with that to where he's, I've seen him in interviews say he, he doesn't like the throw out the hour and start fresh uh, theory. So are, do you, is that what you kind of are doing too? You'll take a little bit from the previous and then add in new and just kind of rework it. Yeah, I think so. I mean, he is as far as like being a doctor of the craft, um, you can have your opinions on him, uh, biases of uh, if you like his sense of humor or not. But oh, I, I think it. as far as, yeah, as, I think as far as like a professor and a doctor and a surgeon of comedy, like he's, he's the best you can get at. And for me, that works. 23 Hours to Kill on Netflix. Do I personally feel like that I can, I can mark and tell you what bits I think are old and which ones I think are newer. I think so. I think his family stuff towards the second half of the special seems newer to me. Sure. He seems more excited to do it. Yeah. And as you mentioned, some of the, the older stuff that he's been doing since his, um, I'm telling you for the last time or that he started working on in comedian in 2003 or 2004. I feel like those bits do feel a little tired. He feels a little tired doing them. Yeah. Um, Although the special, again, the special, not to get, not to make a podcast episode yeah, out of Seinfeld, but about Seinfeld. His, his previous special, I think, or maybe two before it was, I can't remember the title of it. You might know it, but it was essentially all his bits in the first five years of his career. And he just redid those as a special, essentially. And a that lot. His, so his his last two specials are only two specials, and there's 20 years between them. Okay. I'm telling you for the last time. I think is 1999. 99. I and, I wore that and, CD out. Yeah. So and it's it's the it's a lot of stuff that appears on his book. 
that he wrote that came out in like 92 uh-huh. or something. And the, uh, the special opens up with him burying all this stuff because um, he's, he's putting it to rest. Right. So then Comedian is the documentary. It's, there's not a special of the stuff that he works on in Comedian. His next special, the one you're mentioning of him doing old bits, is I think it's called Seinfeld on Seinfeld. Oh, or Jerry yep, before it is, Seinfeld. Yep. Yeah, Jerry yeah, before Jerry, Seinfeld. Jerry yep. before Seinfeld. Yeah. And that's, it's awesome. Like, again, it is almost a thesis of, of exploring who you were and yeah. him showing people, I've grown, I've changed, I've aged. How timeless is my material? And aren't I awesome? Right. Yeah. No. So you're back in Kentucky now. Yeah. And now you're Kentucky. you're just full going full blast uh, stand up. Stand well, up as full uh, blast as you can in COVID nineteen, uh, the year of the COVID nineteen. <laughs> exactly. And doing as you mentioned, the weekend pub date with all my stand up shows kind of being canceled, and it's a real good time to have a new album come out when you can't sell it on can't sell it on the road yeah um so i there are a lot of people who do the zoom shows which is fine i did one of them uh i love performing in front of a live audience i am someone as a comedian i've said many times the audience gives the performer more right off the bat than they've given just by showing up sometimes they pay the ticket sometimes they've gotten in for free they still paid more Sure. before the comedian has said one word. So I feel like you owe it to them to entertain them. Yep. So you should be rehearsed in some way, prepared. Uh, you should be funny. You shouldn't be out there showing them how funny you are. You should be there using your brand of humor to entertain them. Sure. I don't think that means pandering, but I think we're in the entertainment industry. We're not in the uh, show-off industry. Yeah, so you you come uh, you come back to Kentucky, and then of course yeah. COVID hits, and for stand up comics and anyone in the entertainment industry, just kind of turned the world upside down like it did for a lot of people. And so, did you start this weekend pup date uh, this year, like recently, or has this been going on for a while? No, it started in March. Okay, uh, so relatively new live show. Yeah. So yeah, I didn't do. I did like I said one Zoom show, and then I was like, you know what? I want to keep stretching my writing chops. Um, in comedy chops. So I started, I think it was the third week or second week of March. And I've done it every week, give or take a couple weeks off. And I've had awesome guests, Lisa Loeb, provided oh, yeah. a song, did a song live as a musical guest for one of the shows. We've had numerous SNL ex cast members, which has delighted me. Gary Kroger, who is on from like 82 to 85. Okay. Who most notably was in a lot of sketches with Julia Louise Dreyfus, uh, sent in a full-blown character sketch of him playing James Mason, the old <laughs> actor. Again, we're losing all of your listeners. That's okay. Him and I talked, and he's like, I do a James Mason impression, and I laugh. He's like, oh, are you laughing because no one will know who James Mason is? I said, no, I'm laughing because the only other two people besides you that I know that do a James Mason impression are myself and Bill Hader did it for his SNL audition. Right. Um, so I'm like, I'm game. He did a, a sketch where he played James Mason playing Captain Nemo from 20,000 leagues under the sea. Oh, that's awesome. Reading quotes that are either, you have to guess 
Are they Captain Nemo quotes or are they Donald Trump quotes? <laughs> and he sent that in doing this whole costume character sketch. And I was like, this is amazing. And then we had like Luke Knoll, who was a feature player for only one year. He sent us in, he, he plays guitar and does a lot of music, uh, a lot of comedy songs. And I was like, yeah, if, if you can send one in, we'd love to, to play it on the show. He sent us in this 12 minute video and I was like, what is this? It was one three minute song and then a second nine minute opus song. <laughs> and I was like, we can't use this. I, I, I can use this for two episodes. Right. But so, yeah, we've, We've just been really fortunate with um, having some amazing guests and the show evolving. I always tell people it's Sesame Street meets The Daily Show. Okay, so so it's just as it sounds. It's a a news update with puppets. And it started off being an homage. Uh, I do a Norm McDonald impression in my stand-up. and so I wanted to do an homage at first to Norm McDonald's weekend update, sure. like the mid nineties, which is my favorite. Oh, it's awesome. Um, and I love the fact I, that he got fired from SNL over that. That was, that was, I love it. He just would not quit. He, he does not care. There, there's some comics that don't care. He does not care. And I absolutely love that. His, when he came, he hosted a year later. Yeah. Oh, if you can YouTube and Google oh, no, I've his seen monologue, it, <laughs> it is. Either so I've gotten funnier or this, or this show has gotten worse. It's gotten worse. <laughs> He's like, we've got a terrible show for you tonight. Stay tuned. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, classic. It's brilliant. So that's, that was the impetus. So the puppet, the lead anchor, is named Norm McDonfeld. Oh, that's and awesome. It is a variation off of the impression, which... <laughs> I've, I've actually talked to Norm about my impression of him. Okay. Because I started, I started doing my impression, which was, this is an impression of Norm MacDonald talking okay. in his sleep. Okay. Describing Let's a dream. Oh, uh, uh, let me take a drink of my... <laughs> you got to get prepared. Not many people outside of like Jay Moore uh, can do a Norm, and, uh, Norm MacDonald impression, so... Hey, Norm MacDonald here. He offered me a bonus, but the bonus was a trap. Yeah, I'm, I'm not bear, so I'm, I don't, what am I going to do with a trap? So that oh, was my awesome. Norm impression. Norm talking in his sleep, describing a dream that he had. <laughs> what and, am I going to do with um, a trout? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe I'll find OJ. <laughs> um, but uh, that's not exactly what I had written, but I, I had, I had shared with him the impression and he's like, Oh, he's like, I like it. Most people that do an impression of me do a really high pitched voice and it sounds nothing like me. Right. He's like, I like that yours is a little lower pitch. And he gave me a couple pointers on words that he would say within the, the write-up thing that I had. So I tried that impression in my act a couple years ago. And it hit it, it, like it a wet fart. <laughs> oh, awful. Awful. No one liked it. And it made me so upset when I did it because I was like, oh, this is a Norm MacDonald approved impression. Right. You need to like this. Right. He helped write this. Um, 
But so when I started working on my dry bar act, uh, I originally did my favorite celebrities dramatically reading 80s songs. Okay. But I knew when I was auditioning for like different things like uh, Conan or Late Night or even filming my dry bar set, it's a tricky line to have something that is copyrighted. So doing lyrics to a song, right. you run into a tricky area. So to sidestep that and to not have any issues, I changed it to, since also having a daughter and a, a baby, dramatically reading nursery rhymes as my favorite celebrity. So then when I re-examined that and I reallocated some of the impressions to what I thought their nursery rhymes would be best as, so like Seth Rogen um, <laughs> went, oh, so John C. Riley went from a, you spin me right round, baby, right round, like a record, baby, right round, right round, to little Miss Muffet, sour Muffet, eating the cuds away. So then like along came a spider that sat down beside her, and she was like, I'm going to get out of here. <laughs> That's uh, pretty good. So like that, that to me was like, oh, John C. Riley is going to do Little Miss Muffet. And then so like I had like uh, Nicholas Cage, and then I was like, oh, he would do Hickory Dickory Dock. Um, you know, I, R- Ricky, I, was to I, I see a kids' nursery rhyme audio book in your future. <laughs> <laughs> I should honestly, and you can but t- like Arnold Schwarzenegger, like yeah, I'll do you from the bossy go round and round, round and round. Like what works with the voice, and so. Yeah. Norm McDonald, I was like, this is an impression I really want to do. And I was like, oh, it's a no-brainer. It's old McDonald. <laughs> like, it's, it's there. So I started doing that. And weirdly enough, that one has gotten applause breaks. Really? And I can have fun with it. Like, I can go on long because I feel like people feel that they are now listening to Norm. Right. And they give Norm this this air of like, yeah, explore whatever this thing you're talking about because it's weird and we're okay with it. So I can just go on as Norm in that bit and just improv. Yeah. Um, But so then when doing Weekend Pup Date, it's a puppet. And I'm like, I don't want to do necessarily a good Norm impression. So unfortunately, I started doing the thing that he hates which is an exaggerated high pitched version of him. Right. Uh, if you ever listen to his episode of WTF with Mark Marin, he, he, he uses some choice words to, to how he hates people that impersonate him. <laughs> right. Um, that I will not repeat here. Thank you. Um, but yeah, so the Norm Macdonald felt is not an impression of Norm Macdonald. It is an homage. Yeah. But I, and that's kind of the point. I mean, it's a puppet as well, uh, which, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's kind of what you're going for is a little bit over the top and obviously funny. And I have a theory that puppets make everything at least 10 to 20% funnier. Uh, you know, even, it makes news a lot easier to swallow. <laughs> it, it does. And even back in the day when they used to run, uh, when Corolla used to do uh, crank yankers, you'd listen yeah. to, you'd listen to the calls on just audio and they were okay. They're funny. You add those puppets and it's hilarious. I don't know what it is. That puppets the they actual, can get away with it. They, yeah, they can get away with it. But what a what a cool idea! Uh, and people can check it out at Weekend Pup Day. They can probably just pop that in YouTube and and subscribe there. Correct? Yeah. Yep. 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 
Cool. Well, I want to ask you a couple more questions before we get out of here, uh, because I'm always interested in this, especially when uh, I talk to comics that work mainly clean. Like what what made you go in that direction? Uh, one, my personal opinion is I feel like it would be harder to, to work clean. I, I feel sometimes and I know we talked about Seinfeld earlier. He's kind of had this thought as well. Uh, on I believe it was a documentary called Talking Funny where he just feels it's kind of an easy way to get a laugh and he really wants to earn that laugh from the audience. And I'm not saying there isn't people out there that are extremely funny, uh, you know, not working clean. But I, I feel personally, I'm not a stand-up comic, so I want to get your take on this. Uh, is it a little more challenging to kind of work around some of the things that if you say a certain word or have a certain premise, you're just automatically going to get a laugh because it's either uncomfortable or taboo. Uh, and then two, what made you go that route? Why would you say, "Mm, yeah, let's, let's work, uh, clean for the most part instead of, uh, not. I, I, I started booking a lot of, I, I found that an opening for breweries and wineries were a new form of a venue looking for live entertainment. They've almost become the modern day coffee houses. But Mm. with that, they don't have an age restriction, uh, which Ah. means that a lot of times they would be like, well, we can't have a lot of language in here because yeah, your show is going to be a little later or sometimes it's earlier depending on whatever they wanted. Sure. But they are uncomfortable with who might be in the audience and they don't want to deter their uh, customers. Sure. Uh, that that did not dictate why I started doing cleaner. I started personally doing cleaner because it's who I am. Okay. I am not particularly a. I, look, I will I will use the F word. I will use language in my everyday life with people that I know it does not offend. Okay. Um, I do have a level of respect as anyone should when they are talking with someone that they're maybe not familiar with, that they don't know what does put, push their buttons or turns them off, which, you know, the golden rule is, you know, language, religion, and politics. <laughs> sure. And in my set, I, what I, who I like as stand-up comedians and who are really tickle my funny aren't necessarily who I would maybe be thrown in the category with of being like-minded like, like, so, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to pat myself on the back and say I'm as good, but like, I think someone would say, Oh, he's a clean comic. So he's like Brian Regan. Right. Or he's like maybe Jim, Jim Gaffigan. Gaffigan who right. Isn't complete, yeah. yeah. Isn't completely clean, but um, clean enough. Yeah. Clean Comparati- enough. Comparatively. Then, like I respect both of those guys, but they are not my favorite. Like I like a John Mulaney. Right. I like an Eddie Murphy. I like a Richard Pryor. My favorite all-time comedic performer, even though not a stand-up, is Phil Hartman. Yeah. Who can be subversive. I mean, he co-created Pee Wee Herman's show. Right. And it's an original initiated uh, performance on HBO. The special, The Pee Wee Herman Show, was incredibly subversive and dirty, which there's a time and a place. Yeah, and, and I would argue with Phil Hartman, he could be just as every bit funny clean or blue as he was when he wasn't yeah. when he was dirty or however you want to call it. He was just as funny in both of those. You go, how does this guy pull this off? He can go in one direction and be like you said, be totally subversive. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, uh, playing the Hulk on, uh, or whatever, you know, on Saturday night live and you go, what a silly character, but extremely funny there too. 
Yeah, I mean, doing something as basic as I, I think you're talking about, like Frankenstein or Frankenstein. Like, I'm sorry, I said, yeah, arr, yeah. Sorry. Well, I knew I knew who you were talking about. You knew I, I just thought of the green makeup. Yeah. Well, because I first thought I was like, I think he's talking about John Belushi, Hulk. But then, yeah, Phil Hartman. Well, I mean, Belushi is a classic example of someone who probably notoriously, especially when he was like National Lampoon's Lemmings, was not a clean comedian. Yeah. And could say or do certain things that would make the crowd whoop and holler because that's who he is playing to. But again, I don't feel, feel like he is pandering. He was just expressing a certain side of himself. Where for stand-up for me, from the business end of it, yes, you can play 100% more rooms than you can unless you put yourself in a box of like, oh, I got to be clean, can't do that. Yep. Um, where if I do a show and there's not the restrictions of being clean, I won't go so far to be dirty to turn off right. an audience that doesn't, you know, gel with the subject matter that I'm talking about, you know. So I'm it's not a respect think, thing too then with the audience. Yeah, I'm, well, it's in a respect and it's like, how much does it juxtapose against the material that I'm doing? Right. It's not like I have this whole other act. Right. Now, will I be less cognizant of maybe some improv and some like expletives that are worked in there if I'm just talking and I'm not like, oh, be mindful of like, don't let those slip you're professional enough to, you know, to hold back. But like, if there's not the restrictions of being a hundred percent clean, like if I wasn't doing a church show right. and they're like, it's okay, then I'm going to sing my, um, are you still breathing song about my daughter, about the worries of being a new dad. And that's something that dads don't talk about is their biggest fear is if their daughter's breathing or not. I'm not going <laughs> right. to change the lyrics to that song. Right to meet the freedom of being able to maybe talk differently right? Um, because that's again, but I'll tell you when I was first starting off, I can look back at my old notebook in subject matter and language. I don't, it's, it's interesting to see why I thought I should talk a certain way just because I was an, an MC right. almost like, like, Oh, you have to be taboo because you're young. And it's right. like, no, you just have nothing to say yet. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a fine line because a lot of comics get their material from their life and who they are and their experiences. You know, I've heard, uh, I have a buddy of mine who, who does stand up, and he says there's, um, oh, he'll look at a situation and go, I should not do this, but I know about five <laughs> people I'm going to tell the minute I do it. Um, and I think that's, that's, uh, uh, Josh sweat sweat. Um, but that's kind of, you know, the comics life is like what you're surrounded with and what your experiences are and the filter you're living life through. I feel like that comes out in a lot of comics life. And like you said, you're not going to change words or situations just to meet a certain criteria. You're, you, you are who you are and your comedy is a part of yourself. Um, I, I just think always, that's a great way of looking at it. I think, I think what you said is you're filtering it through the way you look at things. And if your life, I mean, it's not like you're saying that uh, certain comics live in depravity, but like if they are in more situations where they're not having to watch what they say or think of it a different way or respect different ways of life in their non-performative life, then yeah, that would probably make its way onto the stage and that would dictate who they are yeah. through their comic voice. 
No, and I think uh, when when Chris Wineland, a fellow uh, peer of yours, was on the podcast, he kind of said the mm-hmm. same thing. What do you want Richard Pryor to do? That guy's upbringing was, you know, so rough. How do you think his stand-up's going to He's not going to come out there, hey, have you guys heard about the, you know, uh, you know whatever. Well, there's, a, uh, there's a great, um, I think it was Jim Carrey, again, to mention Mark Maron's WTF, because he has some of the greatest uh, dissertations of comedians. Yeah. Talking about you know really dissecting comedy is Jim Carrey talked about working at the comedy store when Pryor was a little bit older and clean, not clean material, but like less yeah. on the black tar heroin. Um, <laughs> yeah, Pryor clean, clean was, meant a totally different thing for Richard Pryor. Yeah. Well, Pryor was questioning himself audibly in front of Jim Carrey of like, is it funny? Like, I don't remember. I don't know who that was saying all that stuff. Was that stuff coming out of the guy who was doing drugs or was that a part of me that's inside of me? Right. Who was, who was writing that material and is it still there? Yeah. No, those are deep philosophical questions. I mean, when you're in the arts like that, those are things that you have to introspect and look at too, you know? So let's make a hard shift here as we wrap up. I know we said we, I said we were gonna we were gonna try to keep it to half hour, but you want we're both talkers. That's that's okay. We'll go the full hour. Um, I know that we talked offline, well online, but offline of the show a little bit before you came on, and uh, you know I said, well we we talk about doctrine and theology, but other things too. And you said, well I had a, a religious upbringing, but I'm agnostic. And I love the fact that we live in a country where uh, two people can sit down, talk intelligent intelligently about subjects that we might disagree on. I'm a Protestant reformed Christian. Uh, I hold to that belief strongly. You're an agnostic. And I want to touch on that a little bit. This isn't uh, a debate or a uh, you say, I say, but I love to hear about how people arrive at points of views, no matter what that point of view is. Um, You know, sometimes it gets a little touchy in this type of uh, climate we're in, in the country. You got to be careful about what you say and how you say it. I'm not one of those people. I'm, I've said many times, unfortunately, uh, I don't take offense, but it's a blessing and a curse because then I talk to people as if they don't take offense. And a lot of people do take offense, but, um, touch on that a little bit because you said you grew up in, uh, organized religion. I think if I understood correctly, and now you've kind of landed at, at agnostic, which, I, I even like the fact that you use the word agnostic. That's like a lost word right now because I talk to a lot of younger people and they either go, yep, organized religion or right to atheist. And even Dawkins uh, in a famous speech said, even the most atheist atheist is only six on a scale of one to seven is still mm-hmm. only 6.9% atheist because there's a part of them that's agnostic because they just admit they don't mm-hmm. absolutely know. So even you using that term kind of piqued my interest. So can you give us a little journey of where you came from, from organized religion into a state of just kind of, hey, I don't know? Yeah. Uh, uh, first brief history was raised in a Baptist church because that's where my parents were at. My mom was a raised Catholic and went to a Catholic school all through her days. My dad was, I think, raised in probably a not very religious home. I don't think they were forced to go to church or chose even to go to church. So that just wasn't something he did. So my mom being someone who wanted to go to some sort of church, I think they found the Baptist church because they felt comfortable, not really the indoctrination of what lies with the Baptist church. They were trying to 
um, I think they both believe that they might have been partiers okay. at the time, so they wanted to get rid of alcohol in their lives, mm. and the Baptist church was firm in that. Yeah, even get though, yourself a fundamentalist uh, Baptist church, man. We'll get that <laughs> alcohol right out of you. Oh, hell, I mean, again, I'm not going to be a contrarian to any belief, but from what I witnessed as a child and what I can remember is the hypocrisy of then going over to the minister's house where the congregation would come on a Saturday night and as the hours went on and the kids went away, then secretly booze came out. Sure. So to to be like, we're not going to do it, and then be like, shh, shh, we're not going to do it, but this is what we're going to do. Um, I, I do. Um, I don't know why particularly. Maybe it was the teachings in the like the indoctrination of the Baptist Church that my mom didn't necessarily gel with. Um, we ended up starting to go to a Catholic church again. Okay. And then in which I got baptized, so I went to all the classes for that and read the Bible a few times and got uh, interested in the dogma of uh, the Bible. And a lot of the historical aspects of sure. the Bible got into digging into the Nocta Gospels, you know, oh. the stuff that didn't make the Bible. Yeah. Um, and examining that and being like, ooh, it's interesting. Why would things be omitted if there was more evidence that would support what is already existing? Um, so, again, just the history, uh, the theology of it really piqued my interest. Um, and then moving away from the church because I didn't agree with some of its hard and fast teachings of homosexuality. Of if you're, my my middle brother Eric is gay, mm-hmm. and them just being like, "Yeah, you know, live as Jesus with Jesus in your heart, and which you hold true on earth, I'll hold true in heaven." So then it became a majority thing in my mind. Of like, well, maybe if we all as a majority thought that this was accepting or good, then my brother wouldn't burn in hell. Right. So the hypocrisy of that really, really hit me hard. Um, right to life. You know, I it's not a choice I would make. I'm also not a female with a uterus. So I will never be put in that position. And so I feel like a lot of people vote based on morality, which I think, again, just to throw in the word hypocrisy, where we're supposed to have a separation of church and state, but a lot of people vote on um, a very small margin of topics. Sure. Um, so that that all looked all aside of what the what the different churches and religions put out there as far as faith. And you know, there are some people that are like, "Well, it's my faith." I'm like, great, I think you should be any religion you want to be as long as it. another person, you know, I mentioned the dogma of religion. Um, Kevin Smith, the movie Dogma, right. asked a lot of the same questions that I asked. So I felt a connection to that film and a lot of the ideas that it explored. You know, Kevin Smith grew up a Catholic, and when the church bought that movie, he was like, what's crazy is I support a Christian Jesus. Right. And yet the Catholic Church is going against this movie. This is really, this, I'm someone they should want on their side. Right. Um, but so he also had an older brother who was gay and felt the persecution of the Catholic Church against, against him and his family. Sure. Um, in a bunch of different ways. 
my feel similar similarly to Kevin Smith that as long as your religion doesn't tell you to be little or hurt someone else just because they don't follow your religion or they do and it just tells you that you have to hurt them out of fear or that they're not following or whatever reason like great you should have whatever faith you want to have I feel again the hypocrisy of choosing one and saying this is right and all others are wrong because that's what most most religions want to do is to be like you have to pick us or them I think there's hypocrisy and that's why I'm agnostic because I don't know do I personally feel there's something more going on that I don't understand? Yes. Sure. But to say that I have the answer or someone else does and I'm going to follow them, I'm cool with blindly following someone. I do that to people that I trust and respect every day. Yeah. In my life, in my career, in my heart. Um, so being agnostic is just giving up to the idea that there is something more than me and the golden rule of treat others as you like to be treated is how I live my life and I think I think there are a lot of things that there's a reason why so many religions have duplicated thoughts and ideas and stories that it makes sense so why not are some, those should be things that people learn from. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'd like to say thank you for being so open and honest with us. Um, obviously there's going to be some points in there where you and I personally disagree on some things you just said, but the fact that you came on a podcast that we basically uh, talk about doctrine and theology and then say, look at, I, I don't know if I believe these types of things or what the Christian church normally upholds. And I'm in a place of, uh, I know there's something out there, but I don't know if it's this one, that one, or the other. That's a very vulnerable statement to make, actually. And I do appreciate you being open and honest. And I wanted you to kind of explain that to me because agnostics, I feel, are generally uh, more open-minded because they're not saying I'm set one way or another. And I, and I'm saying that on both sides. I mean, I talk to Christians all the time that say, nope, this is what I believe. And I say, why? And they can't tell me the first reason why they believe it. Well, because the Bible says, well, okay, I don't believe in the Bible. Let's say you meet someone that doesn't believe that the Bible is the authoritative word of God. So why do you believe it? Well, I don't know. And I think that does a disjustice to Christianity, just in the fact that when I see a very hardcore atheist that will say, well, there's absolutely no uh, objective law, uh, moral lawgiver. There's no intelligent design. There can't be a greater power, but you know, I do believe that maybe we're all in a simulation. Okay. Well, who created the <laughs> freaking simulation? You know, so there's some, you know, disservice being done there when you're so hardcore on either side of the, of the aisle. Now I'm not saying I'm somewhere in the middle where I, I would give it, give in on what I uh, think are godly principles. You know, when we talk about um, uh, innocent life or homosexuality or uh, one way, uh, one religion being the way, uh, when I look at when 
when uh, Muhammad said, oh yeah, Jesus was a great prophet. And Krishna said, yeah, Christ was a, was a great teacher and a great prophet. And uh, Eastern, most Eastern religions say, yeah, Jesus was one of the ways. And then you get to Christ and he says, oh no, I'm the only way. Well, from a theological standpoint for me as a young guy who really wanted to know the way I went, well, all these other gurus in religion say he's one of the way. And then Jesus comes along and says, oh no, I'm the only way. That made me very interested in the Bible. And that was kind of my growth into where I landed in Protestant Christianity. And the, you know, the, the, the fact that um, we can have a discussion about it and you can say, geez, I'm at a point to where I know there's something out there, but I don't know. I would, I would tell you this uh, without getting into a whole nother hour of discussion here because I've, <laughs> I have enjoyed our hour on comedy. I actually, I actually prayed. I had, I prayed a prayer once that was, that said, God, I don't know, uh, who you are, what you are, uh, which one's right, but I want you to show me the truth. And I, and I really feel that if more people would do that, even Christians, uh, show me the actual truth. I'm believing in a higher power. I'm believing in a creator. I'm believing in God, whatever you want to call him, uh, Show me the truth. And I, and I think the one true and living God will show people who actually seek truth, not those that are playing Christianity, not those that are playing atheism, not those that uh, are on a team to be on a team, but actually want to know a truth. I think a relational God, a creator, and I, you know, and it sounds to me like you believe in some type of intelligent design or creation at some point. I don't think we all came out of nothing. I think. Uh, a creator has to be outside of space and time to create space and time. Uh, I think that that's a good place to start for most people. And that's when I talk about my faith, that's where I start with most people. I don't start with the social issues. Um, I'm not going to sit down with someone and say, okay, you, you believe this um, about legislation, about abortion, and you believe that. Let's argue about it until we're both blue in the face we have to come to an agreement on what the truth is first and foremost. And I don't think we can come to that as, uh, you know, and I'm saying we, I'm saying someone I might be talking to on mm-hmm. the other side of the aisle until we have that openness to say, I, I do want to know about that. And unfortunately, I think in our society across the board, whether you're, you're, you believe in religion or not, I think we really like our echo chamber. And I think we really like to believe what, we like to believe confirmation bias. If it sounds like something that will confirm what our bias is, let's keep getting more of that. Right. And I think it's only getting worse with, uh, you know, social media and your, I mean, geez, when Facebook changed their newsfeed, whatever it was eight years ago, where it was like, you're only going to get stuff that you kind of like. I mean, it just got so worse. It's like, man, I'm out listening to people I don't agree with. I want to hear stuff from a different religious perspective. I'm, I'm, you know, reading Joseph Smith and Mormonism. I'm reading about, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the Muslim faith. I'm reading about Eastern mysticism and Gnosticism. I want to know all of that. I don't want to arrive at a place in my belief just because, you know, oh, geez, I was brought up that way. Or, oh, you know, I'm in America, so, you know, 92% of people self-identify as Christians. Um, You know, I want to know for myself, and I feel for- yeah, and I I agree, and I, I really appreciate what you know your acceptance towards hearing it as well, and what you just said about like uh, the biased uh, news that we get or that we you know we're being filtered and slash that we're eating. This episode of Weekend Update this uh, this will be I think a, a week or two old. Um, I do a segment at the end that's kind of like an Andy Rooney editorial 
like used to be on 60 minutes called right. breaking the norm called breaking the norm and it's a longer bit on one subject and the subject for this uh you'll be able to watch it see it on the youtube page is titled facts and mm. it's about how we look not fake news it's about how we look for facts that meet the opinions that we already hold Oh, absolutely. They don't, we're not looking for facts to educate. We're not looking for facts to differ. We're looking for facts, again, to to fit into the, the shape, you know, if it's a square shape opinion, we're looking for that square shape fact. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I, I agree. I, and I think my, a lot of biggest, religion does that too. That was my point. Yeah. Is and it, my, my biggest, my biggest thing with religion is that we are all fallible as humans. Sure. Whether whatever we 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 bow to or that we worship. And so to know that humans that came before us held the pen to what we subscribe our lives to, we also have to recognize that they had pressures as humans. They had faults. Sure. They had problems. And to to not hold everything that they have given to us generations and lineages before us as hard. And again, this is for me as hardcore gospel to, to look at them and what did they have preached as being, there are some valuable errors from them because they were, I mean, we look at politicians, there are interests that are beyond what we know sure absolutely personal or whatever and so i think that is the same in in religion but to look beyond that and go well what is the ultimate message sure it is to support each other and to be good towards each other and when you see injustice you know there's they say god's law there's human law what is that are you born with it when you see something and in your stomach, is does that come from an upbringing, a good upbringing, bad upbringing? When you see injustice in the world, what do you do? How does it make you feel? Sure. And the Bible I read says that's a mor- that's a moral law that's been seared into the, into our conscience, uh, right? You, you know, and I and I do believe, although I also believe the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We also have that moral conscience because we're we're image bearers of God, and He is good and holy and righteous and just. So therefore, we do have that moral uh, uh, duty seared into our conscience. So you know, there's a dichotomy there too. And, and like I said, this is a whole nother episode, but. Uh, <laughs> It, it really, it really could be, and I really wanted to keep this episode with you, kind of to the comedy and, and things like that. But um, it's a dichotomy of yes, we're born sinful. You don't have to teach a one year old, uh, and that's a great example. Since you have a one year old, she's mm-hmm. going to be. You put her down next to another uh, baby, and she will take a toy if she wants it. You did not have to teach her to take and and to be, uh, you know, to have a self preservation or a greed or I want that. Now she's not doing it out of malice, but she's doing it out of an internal, uh, you know, human instinct that is in a type of sin nature that says, I want what I want. So I want it now and give it to me. Uh, but in, but also in that dichotomy, there is a moral code that has been seared into our conscience to where, when you come of age and, or even at a young age, you do see an injustice. You do see, 
someone being harmed or in harm's way, we want to rectify that because like the Bible says, we're image bearers of him. So there's, there's a weird thing too, uh, where there's kind of, uh, two things going on there. Um, when, when we talk about that, but with that being said, uh, we just went through about 45 minutes of laughs into then a real deep and serious, serious conversation that, that could, you know, take another two hour turn into some deep, deep discussion on that. But I did want to wrap up the episode here because I just want to bring it back to your comedy really quick. Uh, I always love asking comics this. Uh, because they always have a, either a, a great story or a horrible story. The first time you did stand-up, first time you got on stage, and you said, okay, I'm going to tell some jokes, and, I, and I'm going to try to make some people laugh. Did you bomb or did you, did you murder? Was it great or was it horrible? I don't hear any that are in between, and maybe your story is I did okay, but I usually hear stories that I either did really well, which usually means your energy was up, you, you were, you know, you kind of were feeding off that, so you did well, or people just go, oh man, it was horrible, and I didn't want to go back for the next time. Well, what was your experience on that? Uh, well, I continued, so I went back the next time. <laughs> so it must have been okay. I, I think my answer kind of aligns, even though now we're going back with comedy, it goes as agnostic, right? Like, it wasn't an atheist uh, opinion. It wasn't a, a devout opinion. Um, I felt like I prepared and I did as well as I needed to do with that preparation. And I wasn't swayed by like, like, oh, you got some laughs. You must be the funniest person ever. And that, like, but what I got from it was, oh, I worked on it. Um, I, but it, it's hard because when I was starting off, you know, I was doing Walmart jokes. I was, sure. you know, what some people would consider hack, you know, talking about um, something that, you know, it's a little bit more personal excuse me, to me, but it was like a friend and I, we would used to go to Walmart like midnight. We would each reach into the $5 bin and we play a game of who had the worst movie right. when they pull it out. And then you had to defend why your movie was worse and why you won. Right. And uh, I remember one of my jokes, I don't remember the, the setup and the necessarily punch, but I remember at that time in my life, I felt like every time I reached my hand into the band, I would pull out the golden child, Eddie Murphy. Right. And so like, it was going to be some sort of Eddie Murphy movie at that time, like Nutty Professor 2 or something. Um, but so I don't remember it being bad. So because was, my le- my was, legit show would have been at the comedy club for the for the showcase or the graduation, but I feel like I did some a couple bar shows before then. And the thing you learn real quick is that bar shows most of the time you're hijacking that bar, and people aren't there to hear the nineteen <laughs> year old tell jokes, right. whatever they are. Right. Yeah. Well, Ricky, it was so great having you on the podcast. Once again, for all of our listeners, it's Ricky Glore. Uh, you can find him on Instagram at Glore Ricky, Twitter at Ricky Glore, G-L-O-R-E. He has a new album out just released last month, Spitting Image. Is that correct? It's uh, it's pretty new, right? Yeah. Uh, beginning of June. Where can they find you it? You can get a physical copy on com slash Ricky Glore or Circus trapeze.com you'll see it on the front page there you can get a physical copy which is a cd i know a lot of, that's almost an old term now yeah a lot of things don't have cd players cars don't have them um i like to have a physical version 
because I like the artwork, I like the liner notes, I like seeing the track list things and the different sure. pictures. Also with that, just because I know it is a dying thing, there's a digital code on the CD. So even if you buy it that way, you can still download the album and put it on whatever your phone or That's iPad a great idea. or whatever device. So you still get it that way for the one price. Um, you can buy a physical copy for only five bucks more and I'll sign it and send it. Otherwise, if you have Spotify, download it on Spotify, edit to your list, buy it on iTunes. If you search Ricky Glore, uh, Amazon, wherever you can get digital music or comedy, you can find it there. Oh, that's awesome. And of course, guys, he also has Weekend Pup Date on YouTube. And to all the listeners, thank you for joining us again. We went a little longer than what we thought, but, you know, I think it was a great episode. We learned a lot of fun stuff about Ricky. And make sure you check him out on social media and pick up that album. Ricky, thanks so much for being here. I appreciate you calling in and hanging out with us for a little bit. Thank you, Greg, so much. I've really enjoyed it. All right, man. Have a good one, and we'll see you listeners next week. Be sure to check us out at dmwpodcast.com where you can purchase the best and snarkiest merch on the internet, support the show, and leave us a review or message. Dead Men Walking can be found on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Dead Men Walking Podcast and on Twitter X at Real DMW Podcast. The Dead Men Walking Podcast is part of the Fight Laugh Feast Network. For exclusive show content, be sure to download the Pub TV app and become a member. If you're a business that needs to reach hundreds of thousands of potential customers in your demographic, podcast advertising might be for you. Send all inquiries to Dead Men Walking Podcast at gmail.com. None your biscuits.